If you haven't tried it, you have to try. You always start with a map and a glass of whiskey. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. An American friend texted me recently to share his joy at discovering a new French word, and I hadn't realized it doesn't translate until he pointed it out. The word is dépaysement. It's something like the pleasing sensation that you get from being outside of your own country, especially if it looks nothing the same and breaks you out of your routine. It's about marveling at the smallest things, the most mundane encounters, because they are new and enchanting to you. It's the opposite of homesickness. For the last episode of 2020, yes, this is it, the last episode of a year when we've experienced more anxiety, more grief and more stillness than many of us have in our lifetimes, I wanted to get back to that, the joy of discovery, of exploration, the very reason that we have borders in the first place, which is to cross them. So I turned to Reza Pakravan. Reza has every kid's dream job title, Explorer. He just released on Amazon Prime his latest travel series, The World's Most Dangerous Borders, for which he traveled uninterrupted the width of Africa, across areas any foreign ministry generally tells you to keep clear of, and which rarely see a film crew. Yes, it's marketed a bit like a Jack Ryan movie because TV, but actually it's full of stories and chance encounters of the magic and the messes that we make on the road. It's everything we've missed. Here's Reza Pakravan. I started my journey across the width of Africa from Gora Island, from the door of no return in Senegal. That's the westernmost point in Africa, a point that slaves were shipped to, to the Americas, knowing that they're never going to see their homeland ever again. So that was my entry to Africa, the opposite direction where the slave were were shipped out of the continent. And I carried on through the width of Africa. Basically, it was an unbroken line all the way to Somalia. So I finished my journey in the easternmost point in Africa, in Somalia. It's quite a, um, a powerful place to start this journey. That was the intention. I just wanted to have a very powerful start, if you like. And my guide got really emotional because he's uh, from Cameroon and uh, he's a human rights lawyer. And he got really emotional seeing that place. I just didn't, be, I didn't have any comprehension of what that place means to African people. Was it the first time that he went? That's, that's Henry, right? Yeah, Henry. Henry yeah, absolutely. That was his first time that was on Gora Island, he got really, really emotional. I started singing Bob Marley's uh, song and we couldn't put it in, uh, on a show because of the rights. But it was... Oh, what a shame. Yeah, what a shame. He's, he's a great singer. And yeah, unfortunately, we couldn't use it. But it was a really powerful day that we spent in Gora Island. And how did you travel along the way? We traveled as the local did. So by any means of transport available to local. That was my motto. I wanted to travel as a local, sleep where they sleep, eat what they eat from the same bowl. That, that was the whole ethos of my travel. In this really war-torn region, 
that you hardly see other than perhaps Senegal, you hardly see any foreigner wandering around Chad or Mali unless you're working for the UN or working for, for the army. But the, that's the extent of foreigners that you see there. And they move from trouble to trouble. They move from war to war and problems to problems. And my idea was to I actually want to move from story to story. I wanted to see the the real life of people who form the, the Sahel, who call the Sahel their home, the land that I was about to cross. So I was thinking each interaction could give me a slice of life in the Sahel. What is life like for people who travel in this, uh, who move and who live in this part of the world? We used anything from animal cart, camels, donkey, on the back of lorry full of onions. We used boats that were used by nomads. You name it, we used it. Any means available to locals. And of course, walking for long distances. So it, it sounds almost like you're kind of just hitchhiking around, but I actually imagine that there's quite a bit of logistics behind the scene. What goes into planning a trip like this and how long did it take you? Well, the starting point, if you haven't tried it, you have to try. You always start with a map and a glass of whiskey. Uh, <laughs> in my case, unfortunately, I had to resort to many bottles of whiskey because it took such a long time to plan it. it. took two years. It shouldn't take that long, actually, to plan a journey like that. But the reason it actually took that long was I had to navigate through so many war zones and border closures and insurgencies. So I have to navigate it around these troubled areas. It was extremely difficult. Areas that permission of entry was very difficult, including Darfur. It's, it's been an area that has been close to foreigners for so many years, let alone getting a camera to Darfur. Can you imagine? So just negotiating to get into Darfur took about six months on its own um, and so on. So that's why it took such a long time. But I wasn't willing to compromise on on my route, I needed to, I wanted to do this as an un unbroken line and travel to the places and tell the stories that have not been told. Why the Sahel? Because as you say, there's, you know, you could do other unbroken line trips that would be a lot easier to organize than the Sahel, which is probably the most dangerous area of the world to be in right now. So why there? Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's, it's perhaps, if if not the most dangerous, is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be in. And the purpose wasn't really unbroken line, to be honest. My main concept was that the, the areas that I wanted to travel and the people, the stories that I wanted to tell formed this sort of unbroken line. When the uh, idea of the Sahel started, I was in Chad filming. I went there to make a film for Oxfam. And it was like a mini documentary. And I went to Lake Chad. And what I saw over there really blew my mind. It's only five hours flight from London, if you think about it. But what I've seen over there, it was like going back by a hundred years. It was a time travel. I couldn't believe the lack of development and how, as I said, there's no better way to explain it than say you go back a hundred years. For example, everyone were walking around with spears and bow and arrow, 
or you couldn't see any motorized vehicle or a mobile phone, which is available in abundance across Africa in around Lake Chad was non-existence. So and I was thinking to myself as an explorer, it's great to see these sort of things. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is fascinating. But for God's sake, we are talking about the 21st centuries. I went to the Amazon and saw, and apart from the headwater of the Amazon, <laughs> pretty much most of the tribes nowadays have Facebook and no one uses radio to talk to each other. They talk to each other uh, via uh, Facebook and organize campaigns and all of that. And you think about places like Sahel, not so far away from Europe, and still so left behind. So came back, started um, dig deep, went to the Royal Geographical Society, which I'm a fellow of, I, and I started researching really thoroughly. The more I researched, the only thing I could find was newspaper articles talking about war, insurgency, coup, and human trafficking, that kind of stuff. And I was thinking there must be more to this region than just some really horrible headlines. And I wanted to go and tell those untold stories and perhaps providing pe- people with an alternative narrative to what they hear on mainstream media. So that was the purpose of my journey. Well, you, you did you did do that. And there's a moment, I think, that really encompasses that. I think it's at the end of the first episode. It's the, uh, the replastering of the mosque. Yeah. Um, I forget what town that's in. Jenna in Mali. Yeah. That was such a, a powerful, joyful scene. How did it feel being there? It felt like Glastonbury Festival slash Nottingham Carnival slash Burning Man in mud. <laughs> in mud. <laughs> in mud in Mali. You had it all. Apart from drinks, you had it. You had everything there. The music was there. The joy was there. Um, the, the people absolutely adored this mosque and there was they were taking pride of just plastering it they've been preparing muds for months and ready for um, the headmasons uh, to say to give them a green light and the whole thing started i couldn't believe actually the the plastering of the mosque can be so joyful and they started plastering. I mean, they, they've been preparing the mud for months, but the plastering actually started from 5 a.m. By 10, 10.30, finished. Everything finished. That gigantic mosque was completely replastered. And that goes to show the, the sheer amount of people involved in plastering it. So there was a complete ecstasy of just being there and seeing those people. And the Malian music is just out of this world. It's absolutely incredible. It's a a cultural hub of West Africa and with world-class musicians. When you're there and you experience this joy and uh, incredible beauty and madness and dance and the whole people and community came together was something that I'm never, ever going to forget for the rest of my life. Is that what exploring does for you? Is that the thrill that you're seeking when you go on these adventures? Yes, definitely. You know, seeing those sort of unknown definitely is the thrill. But obviously the whole thing is a thrill for me, is an exhilaration. For me, starting planning, facing obstacles, facing border closure, facing difficulties of 
getting to a place and putting a piece of the puzzles together and plan it and go and raise fund facing day-to-day challenges to just get your expedition off the ground and getting a television behind it to allow you to go and film it and present it and then till you get there all the things that you're facing there all the challenges as well as the joys as well as the difficulties everything about this job for me is the thrill there is no single day for me is is the same you know what i'm saying the variety of tasks that you have to deal with the joy of telling a story that changes people's understanding about certain part of the world and about the world that we live in that is the thrill that is the that's the best part of my job so i want to talk a little bit about how you got to that because that wasn't always your life you're like me like like many people who come on this podcast an immigrant you grew up in iran can you tell me a bit a bit about your your childhood and what it was like growing up there and, and what made you eventually come to london yeah, it's interesting. When I was in Iran, I grew up during that, obviously, the revolution and then the war happened. So my mom and dad worked in television. They have quite a difficult life. When um, I was growing up, obviously, the country is going to the war and making drama or documentaries wasn't um, something that is really well funded. So we had... Um, we didn't have much money. It was quite difficult. But, you know, coming from the middle class setting was fine. We had a brilliant childhood because at least we had some really good stuff like skiing was available to us straight after school. We were going skiing. That was our winter pretty much, you know, lots of outdoors. I had lots of opportunities to travel with my father when the war finished and I was in my sort of mid-teens. And uh, he was encouraging me to to go outdoors, to see people, to travel. He took me to so many places with him while he was making those documentaries. And that sort of ignited the passion for me for travel and seeking the world out there. I had my role model those days when I was a kid was Tintin. So imagine growing up in Iran, you don't have access to that, you know, latest um, David Attenborough's uh, film or there's no National Geographic or Discovery Channel. My window to the outside world was the collection of Tintin books. And as a kid, just growing up reading that um those sort of visual books for me was fascinating. I traveled with Tintin to the moon and back. I went to the Congos. I went to the Americas, everywhere with with this reporter who was the hero. And at the end of the day, he was taking a heroic action and saved the day. And Tintin ignited uh, another, you know, exploration passion in me. So I uh, came to London and it was a great place to start. I have some uh, background here, so family here. That was a good place to come to. And those days I had a really good passion of becoming a musician. I started playing in different bands and London music scene. Those days was fantastic. So I could realize my passion. On the side, I was working in finance, earning really good money. So life was good overall. Exploration those days took a back seat something that I really wanted to do but obviously I was sort of conformed to the to the situation and you can't have everything really I, I was I wanted to really pursue my music career and all that kind of stuff 
but got to the stage that I couldn't continue playing this double life of being in finance, doing a job that I don't really like, and just ignoring my passion, which was really exploration. And yeah, finally, I gave up my job in finance. Obviously, it wasn't as easy as that, but uh, it took a while and forged a career in exploration and television. It's funny. I read those 1010 books like back to back and again and again and again as a kid. So I, I totally know uh, what you mean and traveling to uh, Africa and, and Central America and all that with Tintin. The only journalist I know who never files a story, by the way. <laughs> But uh, um, Wasn't it amazing? I mean, as a kid, perhaps you had a, a really good recollection of memories of him just being absolutely amazing with going everywhere. I mean, the, the extent of imagination of Herge, who has never traveled himself very much, was absolutely incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember my, my dad had the whole collections and um, I was never much into comic books, but Tintin, I, I read definitely a, a lot. So when you were in finance, were you the kind of finance guy who like jumps out of airplanes on the weekends or like how much of a departure was that exploring life? Were you an adrenaline junkie? Were you very athletic or did you have to change your life a lot? Finance was very comfortable for me because it gave me money and ability to be able to travel a lot. So I could travel, had a really comfortable life. I wasn't like a trader or a top investment banker who earns millions, but, you know, I was in a decent salary, you know, towards the end, I was pushing mid six figures, which was great. In two years, I paid all my student debt after graduation, graduating from university. In a way, I pretty much spent all my holidays traveling off the beaten track as much as I could. And these sort of things, learning and having a job as an explorer requires, you know, a huge amount of, if you like, you got to pay your due. You got to be able to to travel, get yourself out of different situations. You got to know how to deal with situations. And sort of, um, it was a gradual build up for me to, to constantly travel, to constantly be on the road, to have the means and ability to, to go to these journeys by myself and little by little gain experience and ability to have it as a professional career. And uh, when I made a decision that uh, I really want to do it, I started building incrementally towards it. So I started doing sort of endurance journeys into a really difficult and strange part of the world and then broke a couple of records and all of that and uh, gained that sort of respect from brands and I went to the film school. So basically I, I forged a career in, in exploration for myself. Found the niche, which had it in my blood. My niche was television. I knew the language of television. I knew the storytelling and I combined it with my passion and that was it. How long does that take from, from leaving finance to having a series on Amazon Prime? Um, <laughs> good one. Um, <laughs> I'm just, yeah. uh, you know, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, if there are people listening who are like, hey, I want to have that life. It's a lot of work and, and quite a bit of time, I assume. Yes. The first time I got a gig in television was when I crossed the Sahara Desert on a bicycle. So I had no experience, but the, the move was so bold that the BBC World, Worldwide gave me a camera 
and said, okay, go and film yourself with this little camera and see what we can do with it. And then towards the end, they sent their cameraman. I managed to get the footage back to them. And they saw the footage and they said, okay, towards the end of the journey, we'll send our cameraman to do spend a few days with you. And that made 10 minutes in the BBC Worldwide. But um, I was definitely an incremental career transition. I'm completely against this advice that when people seeing someone that is done well in certain interesting careers, and then they think, oh yeah, just resign tomorrow and I'm just going to go and explore or uh, I'm going to make television, all that kind of stuff. I'm completely against this. I think for me, it was a gradual transition. It, it takes time to build contact. It takes time to build network. It takes time to learn a craft. And things, you have to give it that time. You can continue your day job on the side. You can work on your passion, build your passion to the level that can pay for your, for your life. Otherwise, you leave your job, you go and do it, and then you fail you run out of money, then you have to go back and start uh, doing exactly the same thing that you hated. So uh, back to your question, sorry, I um, digressed. How long did it take? Took good few years uh, for me from the day that I pressed go till I managed to get my first television program done. I had to incrementally build and build and build and build till I got to the first one. I gave it a first chance that I thought, that's not enough. I've got to get myself to the film school. I went to the film school. I was studying, took some time off then uh, as sabbatical. And then I changed job, managed to find more time in between, used my holidays, all that kind of stuff. I played really hard balls. I worked really hard to be able to finish my degrees in filmmaking, came out and I continuously pushed and pushed and pushed till I was able to get my uh, series, uh, the first television series commissioned. Which is probably good, good training too, because uh, it shouldn't come easy because it's not easy when you're on the road either. So you want to have built up that resilience. Absolutely. And is is a career that is something that everyone want to do. And English is not my first language. Um, I'm not the most uh, well-spoken or I'm not the most beautiful guys around. You know, perhaps Ben Fogel is, is a lot more watchable than this ugly face. But... <laughs> No, I I managed to find my own niche and and perhaps you know for the listeners who are listening is completely doable. Whatever you want to do is completely doable. It's just finding a right approach to tackle it and give it time and keep at it. You will get there. Were there ever moments when you thought, "What the hell am I doing?" I mean, you end up in a Sudanese prison in this series. Uh, I think the previous one you had malaria. Ever thought? Maybe this is the, the the toll is too much. Yeah, I've experienced that question, asked that question a million times uh, so far. So uh, it wasn't the first time I was asking that question. But I have to say, um, when I got to when I got uh, when I became under arrest, when they caught me, I thought, S H I T what the fuck? What am I doing here? My wife is pregnant back home. And, you know, I'm in the Sudanese prison in Darfur. Hello. <laughs> it was it was crazy. It was like really beyond me. I, mean, I never, ever expected to be in that situation. 
But you got out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I, I, I sort of got out and uh, and continued. But yeah, that four days wasn't easy. The fact that you don't know what's happening to you was going to be the outcome. I wasn't doing anything illegal. I was completely illegal. I, it wasn't my fault that Sudanese dictator got toppled by his own general, and the country went to the state of emergency. Right, something that I didn't plan for. In these journeys, things like this happens. You find yourself in a survival situation. You fight for your life. You end up in jail. And you got up and you continue. Like life, isn't it? Now, the beauty of being in an expedition is just constant reminder that life can change any minute. Unexpected things can happen any minute, good and bad. And you got to embrace everything. And that's our life. And you know, you just got to get on with it, whatever the outcome. And the beauty of life is just to be on that roller coaster. Otherwise, it's going to get boring, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And that roller coaster can surprise you even at home. So this year, it's definitely been a big surprise. (laughs) And I wonder what it was like for you, who's someone who's used to making your home on the road and your livelihood as well, to be stuck in place for so long. I maybe this is not a very diplomatic thing to say, but this year has been for me was has been fantastic because you know I'm a new dad, and this coronavirus situation, although it's been terrible for the for our societies for many people, but gave me the opportunity to bond with my little boy, and if I wasn't stuck at home, I wouldn't have that close relationship with him as I have right now. So perhaps that's the positive thing that actually came out of this. But, you know, the claustrophobia of being stuck in my garden shed constantly, day in, day out, spending all the time editing hasn't been that easy, I have to say. I can't wait to get on the road again. Well, I'm glad for you that, that there was a silver lining to this year and the timing for your family was was very fortuitous. So since you're planning again for, for when you can travel again, where next? What's the plan? I have a couple of series in development. One is cycling the, the Himalayas. Basically, I'm, I'm going to be traveling to a very high altitude part of the world and exploring uh, the people who live in the, the highest altitude and the highest settlements in the world and perhaps documenting their journey documenting how their life has been impacted by climate change and global warming so that is one on the go it hasn't been we haven't got the green light from the broadcaster because um, of the coronavirus all the borders are closed you cannot go to india you cannot go to nepal china is a bit tricky to get to that part so that's up in the air and also we have the world's most dangerous border season two commissioned by Amazon Prime. But again, we are waiting for the, the corona situation to calm down a little bit because that's also including traveling to the countries that they don't want any foreigners there mm-hmm. at the moment. Until then, I strongly recommend people watch The World's Most Dangerous Borders on Amazon Prime. It's a nice escape as well, I think, in this particular time for everyone. Thank you so much for um, for sharing your story with me. Of course, you've been a great host and I love your questions. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Is there, besides the series on Amazon Prime, is there anything else in your work that you want people to be aware of and go check out? 
Yeah, sure. I've got another series on Amazon Prime called Cap to Cape. That's the story of uh, me um, leaving my financial career behind and launch the the career in um, adventure travel and exploration. And there is a, a accompanying book for that with more details of the whole transition. How did that happen? Step by step, perhaps. It's perhaps a good step by step reading if you want to really ignite your passion and go after what whatever you dream of doing. Great. Thank you so much, Reza. And uh, yeah, hope we can all travel again next year. Absolutely. Thanks, Isabel. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you to Reza Pakravan and thank you for following this adventure this year from a corner of my bedroom closet to your ears in your phone, your living room, your car, wherever you are. It's been an absolute joy and a heck of a learning curve. That's it for season two, except keep your eyes peeled for a holiday surprise. So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss it and you don't miss the return of Borderline in 2021. I'm taking a proper Christmas break and then a few weeks to work on the business, not in the business, as they say, and prepare a smashing next season. The newsletter isn't going anywhere, though, so make sure to subscribe. You'll find it at borderlinepod.com so we can stay connected. If you want to give me one Christmas present, I would ask for you to rate and review and maybe share this podcast with your friends or with anyone that you think might like it continue to make some noise over the break so that we can start up 2021 welcoming a bunch of new listeners. An extra thank you to members who make Borderline possible and have shown their faith in this project. This week we welcome Lila Smith, Rafe, and an anonymous but no less cherished new member. If you'd like to join them in our community of defined global citizens and help make Borderline happen through 2021, you can become a member on Patreon or on Substack. You'll find the links at borderlinepod.com and in the show notes. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. Music by Diala. I wish you happy and safe holidays, however you are able to celebrate and wherever you are in the world. And I will talk to you very soon.